Welcome to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. We host real conversations with real experts from around the world. Away from the filtered bubble of social media, our aim is to educate listeners and explore any topic in the cosmetic and wellness space. We also get a unique insight into the business minds of the entrepreneurs and pioneers who have helped shape our industry. This podcast and its related publications provide news and general information about procedures and products. You should seek professional medical advice and assessment before considering any treatment. Today's episode of the podcast was brought to you by BTL Aesthetics. Now, Jake, Cosmeticon is on right now down in Double Bay, uh, the Intercontinental. They BTL are at booth 11 and they have an amazing offer for IA listeners. Can you just remind us what that is? Yeah. Well, firstly, today, depending on what time you're listening to this, so Friday, there's a, a lecture by Dr. Saras, uh, who's going to talk all about M-Sculpt. And then tomorrow morning on Saturday, there's Dr. Gina Messiah from Perth talking about the M-Seller device. Mm-hmm. So first of all, go and definitely listen to those lectures because they're going to be really fascinating and give you a lot more in-depth and, and I guess more practical hands-on um, advice about the devices. But the most exciting thing is that B- BTL have offered an amazing discount. Exclusive. Exclusive, yes. If you go down to the BTL stand at Stand 11, go and find Gareth Pepper or Sam Stark or any of the guys. They're all absolutely incredible. And just say, look, I listen to the Inside Aesthetics podcast. I'm really interested in X device. And if you are really, really keen and are willing to sort of put some money down, you get a 10% discount. That's huge. When these machines are like 100 grand plus, that's a lot of money to be saving on a machine. So enjoy the uh, conference. I'm sure it would be great. Go to the lectures um, on the BTL products and go and see the team at stand 11. Excellent. So um, if you want more information on BTL Aesthetics, you can head over to btlaesthetics.com and you can get all the information that you need on their entire suite of products and devices that they sell and distribute. Thanks for listening and enjoy the podcast. Our guest today is Ruan Brell. Ruan is a senior solicitor in the Medical Legal Advisory Service at Avant, Australia's largest medical defence organisation. She provides telephone and written advice to members on a wide variety of medical and health law areas. Ruan regularly presents and writes on topical medico-legal areas for internal and external organisations and publications. She has been on the editorial panel of the Australian Health Law Bulletin since 2014 and is a regular contributor. Good afternoon, Moran. How are you? Good, David. How are you? Hi, Good Jay. afternoon. Thanks for joining us on uh, this rainy afternoon in Sydney on <laughs> on Wednesday. It's um, it's been crazy weather the last couple of weeks. It really has. It really has. From bushfires to hailstorms to torrential rain, but um, we're still alive. Well, I heard ninety percent <laughs> of the fires are out now. Yeah, and the uh, the dam is uh, on its way back 70% up. 70% up. Is it, was it 70? Yeah, that's what I read or saw on the news. Wow. Maybe okay. it's not accurate. <laughs> so today we're talking about um, all things legal, um, very relevant in the industry that we're in. Absolutely. I guess for both consumers and medical professionals. Um, so we thought we're going to look at doing two episodes with you. So we'll see how we go today if we get through all of the questions from a, a, le- like a medical professional's perspective and then we'll head on to, I guess, looking at it more from consumer side as well. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself or just tell, so the listeners understand who you are, where you're from, tell us a little bit about Avant and how you got to where you are now? Yeah, sure. Um, so I am a lawyer. Um, I work at Avant, which is Australia's largest medical defence organisation. I've been there for almost 14 years. Um, before that, I was a civil litigator. Um, but since being at Avant, I have dealt with all things medico-legal and my day job is answering questions from members and practices about anything that may come up. Okay. 
Can and, you, oh, sorry. sorry, I was going to say, can you summarise what medical defence is? Uh, yeah. Uh, so essentially in Australia, all registered medical professionals, so doctors need to have insurance and those that are employed through a hospital usually get it from the hospital. Uh, those that work for themselves need to speak to one of the medical defence organisations. So you might hear it referred to medical defence, medical indemnity, professional indemnity, those sorts of things. So yeah. basically we defend doctors and if they're sued and help them in the meantime. So depending on, you know, if you're just an injector or you're a GP or you're a hair transplant surgeon, there's various cover that they need. Absolutely. And we also cover practices. So even if a practice is providing health services, but not a, a registered, you know, a doctor um, as the primary sort of, I suppose, employers, employees, um, then those practices also should consider having some indemnity insurance. Yeah, because... Um I guess if something goes wrong, a patient may look to go after a particular medical professional and they may go after the business as well. So that's why it's important that the business has coverage as well as the individual service Ab providers. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And increasingly we're seeing not just, it's not just about suing a doctor or a practice. It's really about getting assistance with understanding what you can do to try and avoid being yeah. sued or complaints, complaints either through formal complaints or individual patient complaints directly to a practice are yeah. becoming increasingly the way that patients express their dissatisfaction. Yeah. Um, so we provide advice about all those sorts of things okay. and advice about how to manage your practice and run your practice so that that hopefully never happens. Yeah, I guess it's... Um it's better to avoid this situation to begin with than to try and fix it later or you want to avoid litigation, right? Avoid litigation <laughs> at all costs, yeah. yes, and as a formal litigator. And never want to In a good way. Yeah, we do often end our calls with our doctors who we've helped saying, they say, I hope I never have to speak to you again. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we're there if they need to. Perfect. Now, am I right in saying, because a lot of our listeners are nurses, that they have their own uh, medical defence organisations? Uh, so nurses, yeah, so nurses are still registered, so they need to uh, be insured to a degree. But often if they're employed by a practice, yeah. they should be covered by the practice's insurance. Um, so if any nurses are not sure if that's the case, then they'd want to be having Check. a conversation Call with their employer today. Yeah, to say how does indemnity work. But normally... Normally, nurses are covered by the practice, which again is a really important reason why practices need to have separate cover. Okay. Now, when a doctor, for example, an injector signs up with, say, yourself, I can't exactly remember what is covered on my little certificate of, um, you know, membership with you. But can you just go through what that cover actually means? Yeah. So. It's going to be individual to a degree um, and for sort of legal reasons in terms of insurance advice and things, everyone is always best to call their insurance organisation and say, what am I actually covered for? Because it will mm. depend on things like what your experience and your qualifications are and how you categorise the way that you're covered. But generally speaking, you're covered for the healthcare that you provide. Yeah. Um, so that includes seeing patients, clients. Um, that also includes any uh, non-paid activities, so promotional material you might do, um, 
so obviously advertising education, so blogs, websites, that sort of education activity. If you also lecture or teach other people, that might be covered. Yeah. Um, so it's broadly anything where you're actually using your professional expertise to provide a service and that may be treatment and that may be information. Yeah, it's just like, a, I guess, a health insurance policy or a car insurance policy absolutely. need to be on uh, across what your policy covers and what it doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, same concept, right? Yeah, and before doing anything or if you're unsure or particularly when people change ads, you know, either whether or not it's a service or whether or not it's changing the way that they see patients or adding particular clientele, it's always worth double checking. So look at your product disclosure statement, but also just call your insurer and double yeah. check. Absolutely. Now, I don't know if you want to jump in and give us some really common things that people call you for. And this could be surgeons, injectors, GPs, whatever. Yep. Um, so uh, specifically in relation to cosmetics, 90% of our claims in relation to cosmetics are about half of the 90% are complaints. Mm. Uh, so those are either direct from patients or to the regulator uh, and half of them are for compensation claims. Right. Um, that's really different to other surgeons, other um, specialties. Uh, more generally, our members I'd say the vast majority of uh, requests for help are about patient interactions, primarily things like communication. So not just where things have gone wrong, but where things aren't quite going right and they can either see where it might be ending up or they're trying to work out how to help a patient in, in a particularly difficult situation. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit of a... Um like almost like a, it's one of these situations where I guess if you don't have experience in business or with dealing these, with these sorts of matters, which I guess a lot of medical professional professionals aren't, it can be quite daunting to understand how to deal with these things because someone's written a complaint. Sometimes you may feel it's warranted. Sometimes it's not. Um, how do you get the patient back on side? How, I mean, at the end of the day, really, um, it's about looking after the patient and trying to get them to a point where they're happy or you're able to correct an issue. Um, and that's very confusing for a lot of people out there understanding, oh, if I, if I try and fix something, am I admitting that I've done something wrong? Does that put me in a, in a position where I'm jeopardizing my insurance? It's yeah, quite scary. Absolutely. And I think we speak to a lot of our young doctors who are just really worried about being sued. The vast majority of doctors and anyone providing a service never gets sued, but it's this it's sort of this, um, you know, big looming worry that exists in in the profession. Um, and and also when you're a doctor, the reason that you've gone into being a medical professional is because you want to help people, whatever sphere you might decide to practice in. And so then when someone's saying, you're not helping me, that's, you know, they take it quite personally, but they also don't quite know maybe how they ended up in that situation or how best to deal with that patient. I'd say the worst thing that you can do is then is not address that yeah. situation when it first arises. Yeah. So even if it is a complaint that you don't think is has any grounds or is warranted, the best thing that you can do is talk to that patient first. If the patient brought that complaint up with you initially or if you become aware of it. If it's a complaint to the regulator, then don't contact the patient, but deal with it through the formal channels. Yeah. Um, and just to clarify, when I say regulator, so that's the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency and that covers nurses and doctors. And so yeah. that may be the first way someone hears about something. So that's opera for short. Yeah. 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 So the various complaints, let's uh, so you, you mentioned either someone, a, a consumer might go to their own solicitor and say, hey, 
uh, I want a claim against this doctor. I think he screwed up my face. Or yep. if it's about the doctor's um, behaviour, you're saying that that complaint goes to APRA. Uh, yes, although sometimes your complaint may still be thinking that someone's done the wrong thing or you're, you're not happy with your outcome, but APRA can't uh, award compensation. So if you want money, you, you sue someone. If you want an apology or something or to be investigated and addressed, then you go to, to oh, APRA. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, if we sort of go right back to the beginning, um, when we, I guess, if we agree that prevention is better than cure, um, in my experience, a lot of issues start right at the beginning with the consent process. Yeah. Um, both, I guess, people signing and, and, and reading and making sure they understand what the consent process is and also the medical professional's responsibility to explain expectations mm. to set right expectations and to i guess have proper informed consent and forms that actually cover them for these things so what would your advice be or how do people do it right uh yes yeah, so there's lots of things in there so the consent process is absolutely a process uh yes it might end with the signing of a form but it's a process it's a discussion and it's an exchange of information so to do it right in the first instance is starting off understanding why that patient has come to you um it might be just starting from the point of view of wanting some you know injectables and it might be a course it might be actually i want some surgery so the first thing is you need to understand what they want. And when we're talking about aesthetics, the most important thing is often understanding what outcome they're trying to achieve. Yeah. So if they come to you saying, I'm really unhappy with X and I want to look this particular way, and then they ask for a procedure or some treatment that you know can't achieve that, the first thing you need to do is reset their expectations or talk to them about that right at the start um, and say, look, actually, if that's what you want to look like, then let's explore this other option because what you've just suggested is not going to do that for you. Yeah. Or I can't achieve that or I'm not the right person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's often recognising those signs right at the start will prevent the vast majority of problems. Yeah. Um, and if you say, if it is, look, if that's what you want, then you need to speak to X, Y, and Z. And the best way I can help you is giving you two names of practices or people that might be able to help you. Or my colleague does that really well. Um, or if that's what you want, the procedure you're asking for is not right, but these are the things that we can offer you. Um, and then having a discussion with the patient to understand that. The hardest thing when we're talking about aesthetics is that, it's really hard to know what the patient sees and what they want to see uh, and how they can explain that to you or articulate that to you. Yeah, I think that's the challenge for pretty much every cosmetic procedure, whether it's surgery, Absolutely. nose, facelift or injectables. Trying to understand what a patient is saying but also thinking and their perception of life and downtime and all mm. the other things, it's 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 sometimes actually impossible to tease out. Mm. And I better to delay treatment than to go ahead assuming that you, you've sort of understood. Yeah, I would say never assume. Um, and that's where the discussion is going to become really important. And sometimes after you've had the discussion, um, our natural inclination is sort of to say, oh, so do you have any questions? Do you understand you have any questions? Those closed questions are probably not going to elicit the right response from the patient. They're either going to be too afraid to ask any questions or they're going to think they understand. But if you maybe said to them, so when you go home tonight, how are you going to explain to your family what we've discussed? 
that might be a really good way of hearing from them what they've taken away from your conversation and then being able to then correct anything or add any information or a question might be, is there anything that, what would you like to check with me? Is there anything you want to check rather than questions? Because checking is a little bit less confronting for patients, particularly if it's something quite major that they're considering. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a a view on um, written consent versus, say, visual consent? So, for example, if you were explaining to someone a procedure and what it's going to entail, possible complications, downtime, etc., some people, when they're in the consult or they're looking at these forms, they just sort of go through and just type a signature at the bottom of the page. Um, and then, you know, I've heard situations where people go, oh, I didn't, you know, I was just, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was distracted. I was excited about meeting with the doctor or the nurse. I didn't read it. I didn't understand what I was signing, um, but I'm still upset. Do you feel that like perhaps things such as standardized video consents could be more effective or do you still think that the written form is the, is the I guess, the, the tried and tested way of doing things? Um, the best way of thinking about it is probably that consent needs to be documented. Mm. So if you're going to, obviously with patient consent, actually videotape your whole discussion and then get them you know, to say, yes, I agree to that. And yes, I'm consenting to that procedure. Look, I mean, medicine is still a little old school. So yes, maybe you still want them to sign something. The benefit also of a piece of paper is they can take that away with them. Um, And I'd be saying if you're in a consultation with a patient where they've been, you feel that they've been a bit flippant or you're concerned that they may be distracted and they signed it or they, it's been quite rushed, then you can't just assume that you can rely on that in the future. If you're getting that sort of feedback from the patient during the discussion, that's when you'd be wanting to say, um, look, normally we, m- we might, you know, finish the the, the discussion today and, and yeah. go on to the procedure or there are obviously certain procedures where you actually can't do that yeah. um, and there are some where regulation requires there to be a, effectively a cooling off period. Um, but if you've got any concerns, that's where you'd be saying, look, actually come back, let's come back at again, take some information away with you and then do it. But if you're wanting to videotape, obviously with patient consent and making it very clear, videotape that discussion, even give them a copy of that so they can listen back to it or watch back to it, then it's still documentation of that discussion. And it's obviously great evidence because it's time stamped, date stamped. And you can say on this date, I had this discussion with a patient and here's a copy of it. You may still want to confirm that with a signed form. You may be required to do that for admission purposes if it's a more formal procedure in any event. Were you, uh, David, saying that, for example, you could have a standardised video that you could watch on an iPad going through everything in detail and then sign a form? Well, I've heard people say, oh, the doctor didn't explain this to me. Um, I didn't understand that or it wasn't mentioned. And I guess from just anyone's perspective, you potentially could do one consult slightly different to the way you do the next one. And I guess if you've got a standardised video, you you can't be, um, the allegation can't be made that you didn't mention something because this is the same video you show everyone all the time and there's consistency. So you know that every single point is covered. It's a bit like uh, the disclaimer on the plane at the start where they go through the same, Mm -hmm. there's your life jacket, etc. You can't say you didn't see it because it happened every time. Yeah, so certainly usual practice and standard information, either in a video or in the form that you provide to the patient, there's always going to be 90% of it, for example, might be common that you explain to every patient. Um, What you do want to do, though, if you're relying on that sort of thing, is present it to the patient 
in a situation where they have opportunity to raise questions yeah. because a particular risk or complication might be of no concern to almost all your patients but one patient that actually might be the thing they're most afraid of so you still you can certainly do that in 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 whatever form video documentation yeah. written standard information sheets you might give to patients yeah. but you want to additionally have that opportunity to talk to them for them to be able to ask questions and for you to then satisfy yourself that they do understand so if they come back to you later and say I didn't understand I signed it I was worried yeah. I was distracted you can say no because on this date we did this we we showed you this we gave you this sheet we wrote this down and you signed it and I asked you this and all that yeah. was able to be evidenced yeah is it any more legally binding if you break things up into small paragraphs with a separate signature for each one rather than just one at the bottom where they could claim oh I, I kind of missed that bit or I didn't see it or you didn't explain it whereas if they initial each one they're sort of um showing that they have acknowledged each one? I mean, in some ways, yes, it's easier to then prove that they, you have shown them each one and they have initialed by the side of them. But still the, the most important thing is in the course of discussing it with them, you can satisfy yourself that they have understood and discussed it. Because I, you know, I, I know people have been in, in this situation where a complaint has happened. And of course, like you say, the signature is on the sheet. So the doctor feels like, okay, I've got their consent effectively yet the client turns around and says i didn't understand and then you're saying the way of um clarifying it is to verbally go through it and then there's no proof of that so there is proof of having verbally gone through it in the in the sense of that documentation whether or not it's a signature down the bottom or a form with every single dot point initialed yeah is part of the clinical record and that's why clinical records are a legally required yeah be just excellent as a way of proving potentially years down the track what you did. And so your usual practice in that sort of situation is going to become important. The difficulty and the challenge for practitioners and patients is finding the balance between documenting every single thing that happens on each occasion yeah. and actually being able to deliver care. Yeah, the so practicalities the, of doing exactly, that. Exactly. The most important thing is going to is being able to satisfy yourself that you've had a really effective conversation with the patient and that if they were particularly concerned about something and you you maybe talked about it in more detail, you might want to add some extra notes to your standard consent form or make that really clear in your documentation or come back to them about that or follow them up about that. Yeah. So, Rowan, we normally do questions from our listeners at the end, but this is relevant. Um, one of our... Uh, nurse listeners, Maya Gutierrez, she was asking, is electronic consent forms, uh, well, legal and do they hold up in court or do you still need a paper copy? Uh, no, so electronic records, be it in a, a soft, like a software database or however, if they're stored electronically, are entirely acceptable. Um, in New South Wales, the requirement is you just need to be able to print out, it needs to be capable of being printed. So if you're using... An uh, electronic record software database to store all your patient records. As long as you can print those, they are entirely fine. Cool. Increasingly, the vast majority of practice are moving towards electronic records, which are great. Um, if your listeners more talking about electronic signatures, so if yeah. someone's ticking a box and sending something back, as long as however that's being captured is clear that the patient has actually sent that back, um, then again, that's fine. You'd need to make sure that you know what that's capturing. 
Perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. David and I were talking about that. And, you know, you can sign for a mortgage online and you can sign yeah, for your tax yeah. return yeah. online. So, yeah. I think you can vote online now, can't you? No. Soon. Voting yeah. app, maybe. Yeah. Um, a question I had was um, if something happens that's covered in your consent. So, for example, let's talk about injectables because a lot of our listeners are, are nurse practitioners. Um, you give someone a horrible bruise or you cause some asymmetry um, or it isn't the aesthetic outcome that they were hoping for. And you've documented all this, like bruising, anytime you stick a needle anywhere, there's a chance you might cause a bruise. But people will still um, potentially want compensation. Mm-hmm. They might threaten legal action. Refunds. What, yeah, I mean, if, if people can actually, at what point, how far does your consent form actually cover you for things that can go wrong? At what point does it become malpractice or negligence? Um, and what, at what point, where does like a known or uh, expected side effect or ad, stop and something that could potentially be su- like you could be sued for start? Like where, where is yep. that line? Yep. Yeah. So basically. Sorry, I asked that very awkwardly. No, no, no. So <laughs> someone, so patient comes to practitioner and says, I want X treatment. I yep. want to get an injectable about this. And you say, okay, so why do you want that? This is the outcome that you want. Okay, yes, injectables can achieve that. They do come with some risks. Those risks are detailed discussion. Um, If it's something like bruising, then obviously you're going to talk about, look, all, you know, with all injectables, the risk is that you may develop a bruise. Um, It is quite common. It will resolve X, Y, and Z, and you've discussed that with them. You might want to even show them photos. Generally, people understand what a bruise looks like, but that's where sometimes photos of those sorts of outcomes can come in handy. You document that. They contact you a few days, whatever, later and say, I've got a bruise. You say, remember, we talked about that. It sometimes does happen. Um, The legal way that we talk about that is a known risk coming home. The fact that some patients experience it is the whole reason you have to warn about it. So So that's absolutely where you say, look, that's that's something that's happened. Um, really sorry that it's happened to you, but look, keep an eye on it. These are some things that you can do, and then you might want to follow up with that patient in a few days and see how that's resolving. Yeah. Hopefully, that's where it would end. A particularly disgruntled patient may say, "I don't remember you talking to me about that." That's where your documentation comes in. Well, no, remember we did. Would you like to come in and have a look? I can show you the form. We can talk about it in more detail. And then it basically becomes a complaints handling issue. Or I got that bruise and I wasn't then able to do my job because I'm, you know, in some sort of work where that was a a factor or it was really painful and I became really distressed and therefore I want you to pay me for that. In those sorts of situations, we're saying, no, this is why we talked about it. It's a known risk. It's happened. We're really sorry, but you know, you were told about it. Yeah, I think uh, the injectors listening to this will have all been in that situation. And David, you've probably handled a thousand complaints about particularly bruising or swelling. And it seems to be an issue not of I've got a bruise. It's the social impact of that bruise. People yep. asking questions of what did you do? And the husband asking, did you have anti-wrinkle treatments? And oh, I can't go to work because I feel conscious. Yep. That is the issue. It's not a bruise itself. Yep. And also you'll get situations where people have been having cosmetic injectables for years and they haven't yep. for some reason, by by the grace of God, they haven't gotten <laughs> a bruise yep. up until this point. And then they come to you and you give them a, a shiner and they look like they've been beaten up. Yep. Um, and it's like, well, I didn't get bruised the last hundred times I've had this treatment. You've given me a bruise. You've done something wrong. Yeah. I want yep. compensation. And I guess what you're saying is legally you're covered, but it more comes down to commercially what you want to do. Do you want to make keep this patient happy or yep. do you not? Like, and, and look, there are cases where the outcome, so the bruise 
can sometimes be caused by practitioner error. So actually, and then it comes down to, well, how did you perform that injection? Did you do something differently? Did something else happen? Was it someone who was maybe less experienced? And then it may be an issue about, well, yes, we did cause that. And even though it's something that we warned you about, um, in this particular case, we think it may have come down to the way that we performed it. And then you might want to consider how you resolve that and, and whether or not it's financial compensation or sometimes it's just a discussion. If the patient is going to be particularly concerned about it, look, I'm having needs but I've got a wedding or, you know, we're going on holiday or whatever the case is that they've provided you with information that 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 bruise or that outcome might be particularly problematic in the short term after their procedure, then you might be saying to them, look, even though you've had this before, because of what you're saying to me, I think maybe now's not the time to do it. Or if a bruise was to happen, just so you know, it, it might be quite large and, it, and if it, they're having it somewhere prominent, that's not something that they can hide, um, then that's might, you know, that might be something where you say to them, look, you know, just, and, and it might be also that you want to have in your standard discussion, look, even though you've had this, you know, a hundred times, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not going to happen on the, the next time you have it. Yeah. Um, so that's all again, part of that discussion. The, the, the thing that we always talk about is consent is not a form, it's a process and it's a discussion and that it's in that discussion that you might identify that that bruise is going to be a big problem for that particular patient. Whereas you might have a patient that it's happened to and they're like, oh yeah, actually, oh, but by the way, last time I got a bruise, it didn't worry me so much. But not every patient is the same. I yeah. like your idea about, you know, showing them as examples of a medium bruise, a huge bruise and a kind of a tiny mock. So mm. they get an idea of, there are mm. different bruises mm. and mm. some take two weeks to heal and some take five minutes, you know, it just yeah. depends. And, and that's absolutely where it comes down to setting a patient's expectation because some patients may expect that a bruise is the size of the needle point. Yes. Um, and because you have seen bruises and seen the outcome, you know that that's not the case, but you don't know that the patient doesn't know until you try and address that with them. Yeah. So it might be, look, bruising is one of the possible side effects. We've got some photos here. Um, obviously, if they're patient photos, you need those other patients' consent, but we've got some photos here of some of the bruises that have happened. Um, and so they're then saying, actually, that would be a real problem for me. So maybe I don't want to do this, or maybe I want to choose when I do this in terms of timing. Yeah. And I would think that um, if you do get these situations where people have indicated, hey, I'm, I'm going overseas in a few weeks, um, I'm going to a wedding, I've got some event, that you actually document that in your notes and say, patient got event, advised bruise is a real possibility, patient still wanted to proceed. So at least that way, if you pick up on these little cues that you go, oh, that might become an issue, yep. I better just cover myself and actually write that in so that you can go back and go, well, I actually did specifically go into this in detail. I did explain to you Absolutely. the risks. Absolutely. Yep. And often if you are able to refer back to something like that in that initial conversation, when the patient first raises a concern with you, that can often end it straight away. Yeah. Um, and you can still, even if they've had a, a, a known complication occur, you can still apologize to them, not I did something wrong, but apologize in terms of, look, I'm really sorry to hear that's happened. I know you've had this before and it hasn't happened before, but as you know, it was a, yeah. it was something that we talked about. Sorry that it's happened. Remember we talked about it and we, and we, you did decide that you wanted it now. Mm. So let's work about how we can maybe, you know, reduce the appearance of it or let's consider this when it comes back to treating you next time. So I guess, Jake, it's, um, I mean, from your perspective, I know that a lot of injectors, you get to the end of your day, you've got some notes to catch up on. It's a bit of a drag. You're like, oh God, I just want to get out of here. Um, I guess 
this is just a really good example of, you know, mm. the notes are as important as the actual treatment itself. And, you know, it shouldn't be seen as a burden or overlooked or left as a last minute thought to take care of. It needs to be as soon as you've done the treatment, so everything's fresh in your memory, you're not leaving it to the end of your, t your day there where things might have, you know, you've, you've seen 20 other patients and things have gotten confused in your mind that you actually take it as a really serious part of the actual process. So yeah, you're not absolutely. forgetting things. I think um, some of the practicalities do get in the way, sure. um, but it's not an excuse. You know, people have got high volume clients, high turnover clinics. Um, maybe it's just the process, you know, you're not too quick at typing and all these excuses come out. But at the end of the day, if you speak to your solicitor and they say, did you document it? You yeah. don't really have a foot to stand on if you mm. didn't. It's going to be the one time you didn't that you're going to have the issue. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's really hard because, you know, I mean, we know that we sit here as lawyers and say, you need to do all these things in your consultation. And a lot of practitioners feel like those things are impossible. Yes. It's... And then it comes down to striking the right balance between your legal requirements because documentation is a legal requirement. It's really useful, but it is something that you have to do. Um but then it's okay, well, this is my patient cohort. This is the way I run my practice. How can I most efficiently do that? Um, and that might be whether or not you use software of a particular type, whether or not you dictate. Um, some specialists dictate their reporting letters back to referrers in front of the patient. Yeah. Again, that's a really good way of getting the patient to hear what you've taken away from the consultation. Yeah. And at the end of dictating that, you can say, do you agree with all that? happy to send you a copy or whatever. Um, obviously in, you know, a more, I suppose, routine injector setting, it might be more just making sure that you have documented the sorts of information that they gave you. And some of that social history that patients give you about what they might have coming up or some of that's really important because that's actually what's going to determine how they feel about something if it doesn't go according to plan. Well, I've been amazed uh, and thank God I've got away with it where, you know, someone turns around after the treatment and says, oh, great, I'm going to look fantastic for my interview on TV tomorrow. And you're like, what? You didn't mention that. <laughs> or, uh, you know, I'm an actress, I'm in Home and Away or whatever. And you're like, wow, that would have been relevant before we yep. started this. Yeah. And if you have, you know, a particular patient cohort, it might be that you develop some standard questions what do you do for work? Um, have you got anything important coming up at the moment? Yeah, I've uh, now built this in, don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but it, it, I think maybe patients don't fully appreciate that. They don't divulge it. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah, and speaking of divulging medications that people are on, um, you know, things like sun exposure, like sometimes patients don't divulge all of the information Absolutely. that they should you know people can buy you know medications online now they're you know everyone's a google doctor um so that makes it difficult as well as a, 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 an added layer of complexity when you've got people who aren't forthcoming with information that could be pertinent to their treatment well a, a common thing that happens with me is and maybe it's the way we say it um do you see a doctor for anything regularly or, or is anything managed no, no no i'm fine i'm healthy and then you've almost finished and somehow they drop in, oh, I also have asthma and diabetes and high blood pressure, but I, I didn't think it was relevant, so I didn't tell you. And I drink three litres of fish oil a day. <laughs> <laughs> yes, everyone in Sydney's on magnesium and fish oil. Yeah, well, it's there just, you go. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's then again about developing your questions that are open-ended enough. So a patient may give you information and then you can decide whether it's relevant. And it might even be being as direct with them as saying, tell me everything because it might be relevant. Yeah, I'm not going to judge you or report yeah, you 21 if absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I need yeah. to know from yeah. a medical perspective. And we had this conversation with um, an anaesthetist a few weeks ago and he was talking about the fact that someone said to him, hey, look, you know, I, I smoke marijuana. 
mm. is this going to be an issue? And he's like, thank you for telling me because yeah. people feel they're going to be judged by their medical professional yeah. if they divulge something that might be slightly yeah. questionable. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah. medicinal cannabis is, and or non-medicinal yeah. cannabis is a whole other issue, yeah. but absolutely. And doctors generally, and that a whole separate conversation, are not generally required to report things. Yeah. So it's much more important that you provide information about your health or medications or activities or otherwise that you might be doing that are potentially relevant and might be able to be eliminated as a risk in your treatment. Um, and yeah, it's much better to be open, even if you're starting with, look, I'm not sure if this is relevant, but I take fish oil or I do this or I yeah. do that. Um, and then your the practitioner can decide whether it's relevant or not and needs to be factored in. I've got an interesting scenario. <laughs> what if you said to your client, for example, don't drink alcohol tonight because your risk of bruising increases and you see them out on Instagram out <laughs> drinking and they come back and complain. Can you use that sort of uh, as evidence? Uh, <laughs> yes. So I suppose the question would be whether or not you saw them on Instagram before or after you provided the treatment. After. So we're assuming that it's after. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's increasingly common for uh, social media to be used by lawyers, investigators, etc. if you're defending a claim or a complaint. Yeah. Um, surprisingly, people are still not necessarily joining the dots that what they do on social media is actually in the public domain. Um, <laughs> so certainly if, yes, you provide that advice to the patient, it's documented in your records, uh, they come back to you afterwards saying this happened and one of the questions you ask is, well, you know, we talked about not drinking the night before the procedure, did you do that? And they say no. And then you say, well, actually... I happen to see I wasn't stalking this. you, but it came up in my yeah. story. <laughs> or, yeah, I happen to see this or actually someone else brought this to my attention or, well, to try and get to the bottom of that, we're actually going to go through all your social media accounts and see what we can find. Wow, okay. Um, yeah. Then, and you see that, I mean, that's evidence of the fact that they weren't following your advice and that's where patient responsibility comes into it. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, nothing is safe. <laughs> Anything um, you put online could be end up in a court of law. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. I mean, ultimately. I mean, there's there's so much more that we could talk about consent, but c can you just sort of wrap this up? So if someone signs all their signatures on, on a injectable form and says, yes, I agree to all of this, and then they come back and say, I'm seeing you because I've now got X, what, what should an injector or a clinic be doing? How do you respond to that? So the first thing is to look at what you've discussed with them to, to and then talk to the to the practitioner. If it's not the person having the conversation, talk to them about did anything, was anything unusual during that, anything that happened, um, and then find out from the patient what, what outcome they're seeking. Is it just, I just wanted to let you know, is it what do I need to do about this in terms of treatment? The most important thing is to have a conversation with the patient in the first instance yeah. um, and then conduct some investigation, which is really just talking to the people that were involved and then coming to some sort of agreed outcome. The only other thing I'd say is even before you get to that point, have a policy or procedure in place at the practice about how you will deal with those things if it comes up and make sure all your staff are trained in how you deal with it. Yeah. Uh, I often find, I've worked at various clinics, that people get very on the defensive, despite the fact that it's a quite a common thing. And, you know, like you said, it could just be a simple, I'm really sorry that happened. It's obviously not great for you, but, you know, we did talk about it, et cetera, et cetera. And often people just want the acknowledgement that you're sorry it wasn't perfect. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The worst thing that you can do is ignore a patient's concern once it's, ra once it's raised with you. Um, 
because even if it is something that is has no grounds, you, they still absolutely want to feel acknowledged. So, and and there are some legal protections for saying. I'm really sorry, you know, you can say sorry without it being an admission of liability or without you accepting blame. So sometimes absolutely, and that's again where training of your staff becomes important and having that procedure in place. So if your staff member at the front desk is the person that's going to receive that phone call or have the person turn up and raise that concern with them in the first instance, what you don't want them to do is be dismissive and you certainly want to give them some words that they can say, oh, look, I'm really sorry to hear about that what we'll do is arrange for you to sit down with David and talk about that or let me speak to the nurse first and then we can see where we end up with what's the best way of getting back in touch with you. And just some really practical things and setting their expectations again about how you're going to manage that. Yeah, absolutely. Is that something that Avant does or companies such as Avant do in terms of assisting practices, um, in terms of training staff? Because it only takes one person in the practice to say the wrong thing, send the wrong email, and then everyone's liable. Everyone's on the hook um, for a, a potential claim. So is that something that you guys do come out and yes. maybe provide training for people? So as uh, as one of the arms of what we've got is something called Practice Hub, which is a lot about um, documentation and support in terms of policies and procedures. So that can be really useful for practices in terms of that documentation and that helps with accreditation and things like that. Um, we have a risk advisor, risk advisory service that uh, can come out and actually train staff. Um, and then um, we work closely with organisations like AAPM, the Australian Association of Practice Managers, um, to run education sessions. So if it's specific staff training, it may not be something that can be done directly one-on-one. But certainly, if you're a practice and you've got event insurance, your best or any insurance with a, a medical defence organisation, certainly call and, and get that advice advice um, about the staff training and and some information and resources. And then if you do receive a complaint, absolutely get on the phone to your insurer for the practice and say, hey, we've received a patient complaint. How do we deal with this? Mm. To um, leads me to another question in terms of informing the insurer or advise. At what point do you as a practice or as a medical professional need to notify your insurer of a potential claim? When, when when does something become a potential claim? Is it at the complaint stage? Is it when people start threatening? Is it when they go to a regulator? Like where, when should they let you guys know? Because I'm sure you don't want to get like a thousand emails a week from the same person going, oh, this might be an issue. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. Like yeah, where is that so line? Generally speaking, the way that it works is if you are likely to want to effectively call on your insurance or rely on the insurance cover that you have, you obviously need to let your insurer know. Um, Depending on the nature of the issue or possible issue and how likely it is to turn into something. So if you just have a patient that comes to you and goes, I've got some bruising, you speak to them about it, you've got really good procedures in place, that patient's happy and you've dealt with it one-on-one and you've got some documentation about that, then assuming that's all that happens, then you don't necessarily need to let your insurer know. The concern is if if in the course of that discussion with the patient, they're saying, I'm going to make a complaint to APRA or I want to sue you, or you speak to the patient and you think it might be okay, but this one's a little different to the one that you had before. And so you would actually like some assistance from your insurer so that to write the letter or look, we've dealt with this before, we know what we're doing, but this patient's a little bit tricky. So would you mind having a look at the letter? then you want to be contacting your insurer. If you get a formal complaint to the regulator, definitely contact your insurer. Um, That's why you pay your insurance to get assistance from them. And we deal with this stuff all the time and you might be dealing with it 
for the first time in your practice. So, and if you're ever in doubt, there's no harm in calling and saying, look, this has happened. I'm pretty comfortable managing it, but I just wanted to check this aspect with you. Um, certainly in at event, we make a note of that call um, and, it, and then you can actually get some advice in that particular situation about should I be sending this into you? Should I be notifying about this? Yeah. Um, and, and unfortunately, lots of things in the legal world can happen and it might be months, years later that you might want to get some advice about that. So if you think it's going to be a problem that you're going to need to call on your insurer about, you're best off to let them know at the time that it happens and that really at the earliest time that you're aware that it could be an issue. So if in doubt, If in doubt, call. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> okay. absolutely. Um, getting away from the sort of the simple, almost expected uh, problems like bruising, what if there is like a major problem that the you know the patient turns around and says, "Look, I'm seeking legal advice. I'm suing you." Obviously, the doctor is going to no- notify you, as you mm-hmm. just said. But what what is the process from then on? What happens? Um, yep. So then it's really about. Um, once, if the patient comes to you and says, I've got lawyers, I'm suing you, um, then the first thing that may happen is some communication with the lawyer. So if as a doctor, sometimes the first thing that they hear is they might not even know the patient was unhappy. They might just get a letter from a lawyer, either requesting a copy of their records or saying, we're investigating a claim. We've got a copy of your records and we intend to sue you. The first thing that happens is you get on the phone, you speak to your insurer and they'll say, okay, send us the records, anything that you've received from the patient, and then it starts to get investigated. Um, From a doctor's point of view, a patient can't just decide that the wrong thing has happened and then drag you through the courts. Well, I think that's often what is at least threatened. Yeah. And that's the doctor's fear because we don't understand the legal system. And, and, and that's where, again, depending on the situation, the best thing that you can do is have a conversation in that particular situation with your insurer, with the lawyers to yeah. understand what, what's happening. Um, and it may be that things can be cut off at that point in time to say, okay, look, they've threatened that, send us the records. We open what's considered basically a notification file. So there's a file with a patient's name on it with the relevant documentation in the file and it gets opened. And if nothing else happens at that point in time, it gets closed if in two years' time you suddenly receive a statement of claim, so the patient's actually gone to court and filed a claim against you, then you send that to your insurers, the file gets reactivated and we take it from there and then there's lots of investigation and you're judged by the standard of your peers in the same with the same level of experience in the same profession um, and, and the patient has to provide information from one of your peers saying, Jake did the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, that's not how that procedure should have been performed or that sort of thing. And then we do the same on behalf of the doctor getting that sort of advice that says, absolutely, that was absolutely the way that that should have been performed. Yeah. Everything was explained to the patient, X, Y, and Z's happened. And then it's a matter of where things end up from there. So I'm sort of thinking of the, you know, the two major complications and injectables are blocking blood vessels and killing the skin or blindness. Those are like the two terrifying things mm-hmm. that everyone worries about. So if any of those happened, where does the law stand in terms of, you know, your peers will say, yeah, those are documented risks that could rarely happen, but they could happen. And if they look at your notes and say, well, everything kind of seems reasonable. He cleaned the skin and did a consent and, you know, probably didn't do anything unusual with the technique. Like at what point can you be sued and what point did, it's hard to say, isn't it? So, and that's the real challenge is because a patient can sue you. They can go to court. They can find a lawyer who's willing to put their practicing certificate on the line and say, so as lawyers, if we're going to bring an action, we have to say, 
I've considered all the legal issues and I think this case has reasonable prospects of success. So if you find a lawyer, if the patient finds a lawyer who's willing to do that and file those documents and as defence lawyers, we look at that and say, well, we don't we don't think so. We get expert evidence. Yeah. We look at all the consent documentation. We look at how the procedure was performed. And a lot of that then is getting information from you to say, I did the procedure. This is what happened. This is what the notes say, et cetera. Mm. Everything's fine. Here's my consent documentation. I warned them about this. They've signed it, et cetera. However, whatever you've got to document that, then it may come down to, okay, well, we don't think that anything was untoward in the way that this procedure was done. So we're going to defend it. And then worst, worst case scenario, it ends up in court. Um, Everyone gives their evidence um, from obviously the patient, the doctor and all the experts and then hopefully the judge decides in our favour. Um, How common is that? <laughs> about 3% of cases 3%, actually so end up roughly, yeah. 3 to 5% of cases ever end up getting heard. So in a case like that where it's really clear on the documentation that it was a risk that you were warned about and that we've got pretty good expert evidence to say nothing went wrong and nothing was done incorrectly and that the legal way of expressing that is that you were the, the way that you performed something was within a standard accepted by your peers um, and they have evidence and it's com- it's competing or it's at least comparable usually litigation is in no one's best interests so usually at that point in time either the patient decides well this actually isn't worth pursuing um, or there's some there sometimes is a commercial settlement that might be reached but if it's really clear that nothing has gone wrong then that is you know a matter that we stand our ground yeah fair enough yeah from my experience it depends on the strength of the case and then absolutely it become it becomes very commercial as you said like only a very small number of these cases actually get to court depending on how strong your case is an insurer might go well this is going to cost us 200 grand to defend it's not really worth us defending it, even though it's a 50-50. It becomes like almost like a mathematical mm, sort absolutely. of risk analysis, isn't it, really, around mm, it's a strong case. Do we want to risk going mm. to court? How much could they potentially get? How much is it going to cost to like mm. brief counsel and get all these things absolutely. involved? And it's yeah. like, okay, it's actually cheaper for us to offer this patient X than to go and risk going to court and potentially losing. It, it may also come down to what the doctor wants to do because yeah, they may sure. say, actually, I'm happy that in this case, everything went according to plan. Um, But I don't want to spend two weeks of my life in a courtroom or I don't want to end up on the front page of the newspaper or probably of the internet in this day and age. Um, So I'd actually really like you to consider settling this. Um, Or the patient may decide, actually, I'm still really annoyed, but this is actually distracting, more distracting than the original issue I complained about. And so they may decide to, to just drop it. Just drop it. Well, I mean, from my perspective, what you just said, if if the doctor's in that position where they're forced to think about setting out of court, I feel like that's admission of guilt. And and I, I feel that's mm. uh, difficult if you're the doctor who feels like you didn't do anything wrong. So generally speaking, if you're settling a case out of court, it's what's called without admission of liability and the settlement documents say that without admission of liability the following orders are made number one sure judgment for the plaintiff in this amount of money yeah um they're confidential um and the difficulty is it really is that balancing act so it may be that you say i don't want i don't think i did anything wrong but i don't want to end up in court I don't want to be on the front page of the paper. I want to get back to running my practice. So this is where I'm wondering whether 
patients can maliciously dangle that threat to, you know, scare doctors into paying them off, basically. Yep. The malicious patient generally won't take it that far because they won't hopefully be able to find a lawyer that's going to put their own practicing certificate on the line. Loads of patients, as I'm sure you've both experienced, say, I'm going to sue you without really understanding what that means. Or they understand what that means, but ultimately when it comes to the crunch, they're not going to do it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and that's, again, another reason why if that's the first thing that you hear from the patient, I'm really unhappy and I'm going to sue you, then that's where, again, the way that you deal with their dissatisfaction is going to become really important. You can't necessarily predict whether or not they're going to go through with it, but you can certainly talk to them about what's happened, remind them of the discussion you had before the procedure, remind them of the photos you showed them or the extra information you gave them to really put it into context. And at the end of the day, once you commence legal proceedings against a doctor or a nurse, that relationship's done. Absolutely. Basically, right? And at the end of the day, we've gone to seek out um, assistance from a medical professional, whether they be a doctor or a nurse, to get a certain outcome. And generally, the best person to get you to that outcome is the person that's got Mm. you to the situation to begin with. They know your anatomy. They know exactly what was done. So really, should be trying to work towards like a good outcome. And it's probably unless the the relationship's completely broken down or you've lost confidence in that person, that you try and work with them to get to a point with you're happy because they're probably in most cases in the the best person to get you to where you need to go to. Absolutely. And that's, again, where all the preparation work you've done in setting their expectations and talking to them and establishing that rapport. And, you know, the the doctor-patient relationship is a two-sided relationship. It relies on both parties doing their bit and trusting each other. And and that's where I'd also say is the patients that you see where even before you've commenced treatment, you've got some alarm bells going off or you've got some red flags. Mm. And if you think, I'm just not sure about this. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Now, another weapon that the modern patient can use, which is probably harder for anyone to control is the online bad review, negative review, trolling, whatever you want to call it. I I know someone who's been in the situation, I won't mention any names, where a treatment was done from his perspective and thinking back on the case, nothing went weird on the day. Consent form was signed, etc. And then a week later he got an email, big long email to say, I'm absolutely outraged with your behavior on the day and, and the result and I feel like I waste my money and I want a refund and if you don't do that, I'm going on Google and I'm going to you know, yep. tear you to pieces. Well, yep. What do you do with that? Um, uh, there are a few options. That's an you know, a hour-long discussion in itself probably. <laughs> um, it's, really, it's really hard. We don't pretend that it's not hard. The real challenge is that there are lots of restrictions on what doctors can do online. Um, patients often use online forums as a way of circumventing having to deal with something face-to-face. Yes. Um, and if you've got the email where they're threatening that um, and they've in that email they've asked for a resolution, whether it's a refund or some other sort of thing, the first, the best thing that you can do to that again is addressing that and acknowledging that with the patient and offering them another solution mm. in the first instance. So, look, I'm really sorry to hear that you're unhappy. It's not something I at all anticipated. Everything went really, you know, perfectly on the day. Um, please come in and let's have a chat about it. No, I don't have time to do that. I'm not going to do that. Just give me the refund. This is what happened. Give me the refund at, or I'm going to put it up on Google. Yeah. That's, again, a commercial decision. Do I give that person a refund? Now, just because you give that person a refund doesn't mean 
they're not going to go and put it up on Google. Hey, I wrote this to the doctor. I was really unhappy. I asked for a refund. He gave it to me. She gave it to me. And I'm still really unhappy, so I'm still going to put the review on Google. Well, I wondered if uh, whether a lawyer or solicitor would sort of come into that argument and say, okay, the doctor agrees to refund you because mm-hmm. you're unhappy. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. These things occasionally happen, but you also have to sign something so yep. you won't do that. Absolutely. Yep. We call that a non-disparagement clause. Okay. Um, so, yep. So, if you're, you are at all considering um, paying or refunding or paying some additional money, if, if that comes into play or if that's discussed, yes, absolutely. Get them to sign something. Get them to sign an agreement that would include a, a clause that the patient is not to go and disparage you on social media or otherwise in the public forum in any way, however your okay. lawyers might want to word that. Yeah. If they still then go and do it, they've breached a term of your then agreement you and then you can enforce it. Um <laughs> And look, I mean, you know, certainly, yes, there have been instances of patients still breaching those sorts of agreements. And I guess people as well, if they're smart, they won't use their real name. They'll get a friend to do it for them. <laughs> They'll yeah. do things that make it non-identifiable to them to still, you'll get the malicious people that will do those sorts of things. Yeah, absolutely. And look, we, you know, we've certainly assisted members in those situations and we're currently doing a lot of work about this sort of concept yeah. of reputation management. Um, you no know, one's safe these days. <laughs> no, and it's really difficult because also, I mean, particularly in aesthetics is online profiles and advertising is a really great way of reaching people. You sort of have to take the good with the bad. Yeah, it's a double-edged um, sword. Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. Well, any more questions on... Um, I guess, a consent or litigation. I mean, I guess it, actually something I would like to know is what is the process of litigation? I mean, because from my understanding, it, I mean, even if you have like a rock solid case, something has gone wrong, it can still be like a two-year process. You can still be out of pocket, that. hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees before yep. you've even seen your day in court or gotten to the mediation table. Yeah. So, I mean, what is this, how does this process sort of roll out? Um, so absolutely, yet yeah, the legal process. If you're having I think a litigated, people don't realise how 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 grueling it can be, even if you've got everything on your side. Yep, yep. So look, it is a long process due to lots of reasons, demands in the court, particularly complex cases, just take time to investigate. Um, if you're insured, then your insurance should cover the legal costs of that. Obviously, subject to your own circumstances. Um, so it's not something as an individual. You know, doctors do get quite worried if they suddenly receive a statement of claim in the mail that this means that their livelihood is going to be threatened. That's why they have insurance. That's why they're required to have insurance. Um, But yeah, certainly if litigation is commenced, so if someone's actually bringing, filing what's called a statement of claim in the courts, um, it can be two, three, if not more years until that case is resolved. And that's if a litigated, if that's actually something that is being defended, you need to wait for a number of days or weeks to become available in the court calendar and all those sorts of things. So the process, did you want me to break it down step by step? Oh, just, I guess, just sort of high level in terms of what that actually looks like. And just to give, I guess, both medical practitioners and I guess patients an understanding of if they do go down this road, what's it look like for them? Yep. So the first thing might be the patient obviously going to talk to the lawyers, the lawyers investigate and decide, yes, okay, we think you've got a claim, so we're going to commence proceedings. And there's quite a lot of investigation before they even got to that point. Um, And then the doctor during that process might receive a request for their records because really you can't investigate what's happened if there's no sort of access to the records. Um, And then the next thing you get might be the statement of claim and that gets the court process started. So you get a date for 
often they're th- called things like pretrial conferences or directions hearings, which is the lawyers working out dates by which they have to do things, and that's all the investigation. Depending on how much money is involved, so Supreme Court, District Court, um, that ma- that process may take a year or two. There's usually mediation now. Almost all jurisdictions require you to have some sort of attempt at mediation, um, and so that's the, both the lawyer's uh, for the doctor and the lawyers for the patient meeting in a room, um, usually with the patient present, not always with the practitioner present, talking about whether or not they can reach some kind of resolution. Yeah. So it's like uh, a last ditch attempt to yeah, get things yeah. resolved before and you go to court and absolutely. spend lots of money. Absolutely. And that that sort of discussion can still be, we still don't think that anything wrong has happened here and yeah. all we're willing to do is, you know, pay your costs or yeah. whatever the case might be. Or it might be, no, we want a verdict for the doctor. We want a verdict for the doctor and that's your line. Yeah. But you do generally have that discussion. And then once you've done that, if that doesn't solve it, then you go and you get a hearing date yeah. from the court. And if it's a really complex case, hearings can take three to four weeks, if yeah. not longer. Yeah. Gosh, we've still got so much to cover. We still want to talk about advertising guidelines and being able to talk about, you know, <laughs> dirty words that begin with the letter B. Um, so, and also from the consumer's perspective as well. Um, so I guess maybe we'll wrap things up here and maybe look at doing, getting you to come back for a second episode. But I guess just to finish off, if we were had to sort of, you know, maybe in a few sentences or a few bullet points, what would your advice be for like nurse practitioners and doctors or allied health professionals, um, what they can do to sort of protect themselves. And I guess if you had to just sort of give them su- summary advice, yep. what, what would it be? Okay. So I'll try and summarize it in- <laughs> No <a> pressure. <laughs> <laughs> establish rapport with your patient, <laughs> use communication and discussion with them to do that. Set their expectations early and also make sure you understand what your patient's expectations are. Document as much as you can, um, understand that you are required to, but also work out what's going to be the most effective way of documenting that in your practice. Um, and then if you do become aware of an issue, deal with it straight away and and acknowledge that it's happened and then, you know, get some advice from your insurer or otherwise in terms of how best to manage that particular situation. Okay, great. Thank you so much. And um, if people want to get in contact with you, if they want to get in contact with Avant, how do they, yep. how do, they do so that? So our members, if if you're a practice or a doctor that's already insured with Avant, you can call our medical legal advisory service or our member services line. Um, if you are insured with someone else or not insured and you want to uh, get some information about whether or not you should take out a policy, then again, call member services, which is 1-800-128-268. Email addresses. um, You guys, I'm assuming you don't do social media. Uh, So (laughs) um, (laughs) best thing's probably to go to the website and depending on if you wanted policy advice or if you want legal advice, if you're already a member, there's some email addresses on the website that'll point you in the right direction. Fantastic. And that is www.avant.org.au. A-V-A-N-T. A-V-A-N-T.org.au. Excellent. Thank you for your time, Ryan. No worries. Thanks, Thanks so much. Soon. Thanks. Cheers. No worries. Bye. Today's episode of the podcast was brought to you by BTL Aesthetics. Now, as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and again at the beginning of this podcast, Cosmeticon is on right now in Sydney down at the Intercontinental Hotel in Double Bay. BTL are situated at Booth 11, and they have some amazing offers for exclusive offers for IA listeners. Jake, remind us what that is all about. Yeah, absolutely. So if you're interested in MSculpt, MSeller, any of the portfolio of the BTL products, go and meet the team, particularly go and seek out Gareth Pepper. He's a great guy. Yeah, take him for a beer. He loves a beer. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but seriously, if you you want to purchase a device, mention the Inside Aesthetics podcast, you'll get an exclusive discount of 10%. 
and then you can negotiate after that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, tell them Jake sent you. Um, so for anyone wanting uh, more information on BTL and their entire suite of products they sell and distribute, head on over to btlaesthetics.com. Thank you for listening to the podcast and we hope you enjoyed Cosmeticon. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at inside underscore aesthetics. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests. 